if you were in Sunday school, <clears throat> that, that song, and this is always unintentional, um, it's kind of a nice contrast to the city of Nineveh, uh, as we talked about, Randy was teaching in the book of Nahum. Um, anyway, that stood out to me as we were singing that. In the, uh, in the late 1970s, a guitarist by the name of Phil Kagey released an album called Love Broke Through. And on that album is a song titled Time. Well, he hasn't always been around, and he won't always be, but he's on the move at this moment, measuring life for you and me. I fear we all submit to him, existing anxiously, and no one is able to turn him off except the Lord who holds the key. When the Lord stops him, that'll be it. Too late for apologies. Too late to forgive your brother. Too late to get on your knees. When the Lord stops him, that'll be it. Too late to help the needy. And worst of all, it's too late to turn. You must face eternity. His name is time, and he's coming to an end. His name is time. Where will you be, my friend? His name is time, and he's coming to an end. His name is time. Where will you be, my friend? Most people think he'll never stop. He'll go on perpetually, but old man time is running out and he'll cease eventually. Most of us, uh, many of us, go through life for so many years believing that the effects of time will actually have no effect on us. Believing that we are somehow impervious to time, immune to its effect on our bodies, immune to its effect on our minds and our relationships, and even, and maybe most especially, immune to its effects on our spiritual lives. But then we turn a certain age, and naps become a joy and then a necessity. Fiber turns into the most important meal of the day. We start losing our reading glasses or finding that we have 30 or 40 pairs stashed all around the house. We start thinking of all the time that we've wasted. It may not have seemed like a waste of time at the time, but the passage of time is a, is a funny way of, of shifting the way that we see time, especially when our time begins to run out, Right? Turn to Psalm 90. If you're not already there, I want to read this psalm. It's 17 verses. Right at the introduction here, which we believe um, are inspired part of the original text, this is uh, introduced as a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. 
The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's just pray one more time. God, as we um, dig into your word right now, I pray that you would um, give us ears to hear. Help us to understand what you would say to us this morning, Lord. That we would pay attention and hear what you have to say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, admittedly, uh, in my time as a, as a pastor, I have not preached a lot of funerals. But for most of the ones that I, that I have preached, the deaths were not a surprise most of the time. Cancer does and did what cancer tends to do. Old age led to the inevitable outcome that we all eventually expect. But there have been some unexpected funerals a few who have died way too young. But I'm always a bit baffled by when a family member is shocked at the death of, say, their 80-year-old mother or father. I guess I shouldn't be because death tends to, tends to sneak up on us sometimes like that, even when we should be paying attention. Well, this is the mood of this psalm, of Psalm 90. And so as it says here in the introduction, this is the prayer of Moses, the man of God. This makes this probably the oldest of all of the Psalms. And although we're not sure at what point, as I said earlier, we're not sure at what point in Moses' life he actually prayed this prayer, as we read through it, we can sort of understand. Logic kind of tells us that it must have been very near the end of his life. It must have been prayed at some point during Israel's wilderness wanderings, at some, sometime after the time that God had said to them in, in Numbers 14, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years. And you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to the, all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But those words in Numbers chapter 14, they were a death sentence for a generation of Israelites who refused to trust in God's leading. And so they would spend 40 years in the desert, and then they'd die there. But I bring that up at the outset, as we kind of just get into this, so that we would understand the context of Moses' prayer here. You see, this is first and foremost a, a prayer uh, for a people dying in the wilderness because of their sin, because of their rejection of God. And we must understand that before we begin to apply this to ourselves. 
So Psalm 90 is a song about time. It is a lament. It is a praising of God in the darkness of the twilight years. It's a sad song about man's misery, his mortality, his sinfulness. And we have to read this through the lens of the ancient Israelites wandering in the wilderness. But we also get to read this as Christians. Christians who have the privilege of looking beyond the barren wasteland of the desert, beyond the mountains that Moses would die on, and into the true, the true promised land. I really like Charles Spurgeon. I've mentioned him a couple of times in these Psalms series. And in his commentary on this psalm, he wrote this. He says, Many generations of mourners have listened to this psalm when standing around an open grave. They've been consoled thereby, even when they've not perceived its special application to Israel in the wilderness and have failed to remember the higher ground upon which believers now stand. We have to be very careful not to, not to allegorize the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. We have to be very careful to understand the context before we draw straight lines to ourselves here. See, before jumping to our application, we need to to really stop in the New Testament. So all the way back in Genesis 15, verse 13, God had promised Abram, Abraham, he promised him this. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This turned out to be their time in Egypt. And while God had led them out of Egypt across the Red Sea, their their wandering and their journey to the promised land wasn't over. Peter picks up on this kind of language of wandering, of exile, journey, in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, when he writes this, He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But again, Peter is writing to literal sojourners and exiles. Christians who were were literally fleeing persecution, but but I believe the principle for us still stands because Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 tells us that our citizenship as Christians is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we are just sojourners and wanderers in this land. And so with that truth in mind, that we are sojourners, that we are uh, exiles in this sin-filled wilderness because we're citizens of heaven from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, with that kind of overarching truth in mind, I'm going to give you four statements from this prayer that we need to acknowledge and embrace as we pray this prayer, even for ourselves as Christians. So four statements. The first is this, and I'll go over each of them. The first is that God is our dwelling place. God is our dwelling place. The second is that man is frail. God is our dwelling place and man is frail. And the third is that God is wrath. God is our dwelling place. Man is frail. God is wrath. And then the fourth one, 
is in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. So let's begin in verses 1 and 2 with God is our dwelling place. Verse 1 again, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He says right at the outset, God is our dwelling place. And so the Israelites, uh, from the very beginning of their history, when God called Abram out of the land of Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, they were a wandering people. Abram wandered, lived in tents. Isaac wandered. Jacob wandered. And now Moses was leading them through the wilderness of Sinai. And as he prays this, Moses here is acknowledging that God himself has truly been their home. Whether they happen to live in tents now as they were in the desert, or if they lived in houses back in Egypt, or even in palaces as the later kings of Israel would and and Moses grew up in. And of course, this is really the same for us. God is our dwelling place not whatever your current home address is. Not even this building. Although I I believe that something unique happens when the saints assemble, at the assembling of the saints. But God is our dwelling place. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 15, even while using a different kind of metaphor, he, he says the same thing. In John 15 verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that that your joy may be full. Now, when we resume our study of John's Gospel in a few weeks, and when we get to John chapter 15 in a few years, we will take those verses apart and examine them closely. But for now, what we need to see is that for us as Christians, Jesus clearly states that He is our dwelling place. And if all that talk about abiding is confusing to us, and and it is, we can acknowledge that. It can be confusing. John will explain it like this in his first letter in 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. It's, It's actually fairly simple. He says this, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, And love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. We are united with Christ. 
And in fact, Paul will explain in Ephesians chapter 5 to explain this sort of abiding and and unity and, and God really being our dwelling place. He will say that marriage is a picture of our abiding in Christ. That marriage is a picture of God being our dwelling place. And so he will say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. As a result, we may be assured that it is God who shelters us, who comforts us, who protects us and cares for his people, for he is our dwelling place. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses issues several blessings. And in the midst of this, he says this. In Deuteronomy 33, there is none like God, O Jerusalem, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens dropped down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning back to you and you shall tread upon their backs. And this dwelling place, This is the place where we live. It's not temporary. It's permanent. This is the place where we're never moving out of. This is the place that we will never abandon. God is our dwelling place. This dwelling place shelters us from the storms of life. In fact, think for a moment of the, it's nice and cool today and yesterday, but think of the hot weather that we've had over the last couple of weeks. Our dwelling place shelters us. Our dwelling place shelters us from the heat of the wrath of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place, he says, comforting us, providing us with cool water. In fact, living water, washing water, the washing of regeneration. He has comforted us by providing us with rest. This is the place where we live. This is our dwelling place. He protects us from our enemies there. He protects us even from sin. He provides safety. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. And this dwelling place is the eternal creator. Look again at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God was when nothing else was. One of the possible translations of dwelling place in the first verse is refuge. Um, It's not quite as accurate in this case because the word refuge brings to mind something something temporary like running into a fort, right? Um, And since your home is probably your most preferred refuge, it's appropriate We can understand why we might want to use that here. And so I want to put both of these ideas together, verses 1 and verse 2. If God were not of eternity past, he says, you are from everlasting to everlasting. If God were not of eternity past, then he would not be a suitable refuge, dwelling place for man. Man, mankind, is powerful, right? 
We're powerful. We can make war. We can subdue the earth. We can go to space. We can conquer the highest mountains. But God is from everlasting, from even before those mountains were made. And so he is the only suitable refuge. He's the only suitable dwelling place, hiding place for man. God is from everlasting to everlasting. And if God were not too everlasting, if he might change, if God might retire or cease to be God, he would not be a certain eternal dwelling place for his people. This is of utmost importance to us because we have placed our hope, we have placed our lives, we've placed our souls, our eternities in the certainty of the everlastingness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have placed our hope that, that when he had victory over sin and death, it was, a, it was a permanent victory. We've placed our hope in that truth. This is the truth of the, the nature and the character of God. And it not only sets the foundation for our faith, that he is from everlasting to everlasting, it sets the foundation for our faith, but really it sets the foundation for this prayer. And it kind of sets the contrast for the next section, which says that compared to God, man is frail. Man is frail. Pick it up in verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away like a flood, they're, they're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Think of the contrast here. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7, um, we can read of man's origins. We read this, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and No small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man uh, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Just as God created man from the dust, there in Genesis chapter 2, here in Psalm 90 verse 3, Moses says that it's actually God who returns man to the dust. This is the frailty of man. We can see this right here, that this is by the word of God. This is a command. Return, O children of man. Return to the dust. You return man to the dust. You send them there. So I said before that man is powerful. Um, He can conquer mountains, but he is nothing compared to the one who formed man from the dust and returns him there. There is power in God's word, in his words. He spoke, he spoke, let there be light, and creation began, right? And he speaks, return, O children of man, and those words bring destruction, they bring death. And pay special attention to the details here, okay? Man is not said to die, to return to dust because of fate or nature or, or even inevitability. It's because God sends him back to the dust. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Not because it's poison. Not because it's bad for you. 
but because God is going to kill you. Because God in His holiness is going to look at Adam in his sin and justice must be served. I suppose some could call the curse simply the results of Adam's disobedience, and it surely is. But Moses here is emphasizing God's sovereignty in the affairs of men, even in death. In fact, this was God's promise in the curse. And God is a promise-keeping God. In the midst of the curse, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, He says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That was the sentence that God gave to Adam. Again, Moses here is is comparing the everlastingness of God to the finiteness of man. He is lamenting his own mortality. He's mourning the, the ravages of death upon his people. But to a God who is from everlasting to everlasting, the passage of time is nothing. A thousand years passes like it was yesterday. James picks up on this idea. He says, you, uh, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Man is as frail as dust, as sturdy as a breath on a, on a cold winter day, but God is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, don't worry. God has not singled you out as singularly frail as particularly weak. Whole generations, he says, are swept away like a flood. That's verse 5. Maybe he's talking about, maybe Moses here is talking about massive amounts of people that die all at once. Certainly he had seen the Egyptian army die in the flood of the Great Sea when the waters crashed down on them. Maybe he's thinking of that. Um, Maybe he's saying that in a moment, in a dream, within a quick nap, an entire generation has passed by. Regardless, they're gone. The World War II generation, it's nearly gone. Do you realize that? The World War II generation is is nearly gone. It seems like just yesterday, my grandfather was telling stories of being on the USS Ticonderoga in the Pacific, being hit by a Japanese kamikaze, living to tell about it, proudly wearing his USS Ticonderoga hat for years and years and years. And now he's gone. But it wasn't just yesterday. He didn't tell me those stories yesterday. He's been gone for a few years now. A whole generation swept away like a flood, faded and withered, not forgotten, not yet, but gone, or nearly gone. But even here, there's good news. Because for us as Christians, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23, 24, and 25, Peter says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the very next line is this, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And you see the correlation there. Grass, faded and gone. 
the word of the Lord remains forever. Man is, is frail. He is perishable, to use Peter's term. But God's everlasting word, which remains forever, the, the good news that has been preached to us has caused us to be born again through the imperishable, the unfrail seed, which is Jesus Christ. Because, because right before Peter wrote that, right before he quoted that kind of hymn there, he wrote this in 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21, just a few verses earlier. He says, and, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of, of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, our everlasting dwelling place. From everlasting to everlasting. And without Christ... We face God's wrath because God is wrath. You ain't seen wrath until you've seen God's wrath. Look at verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or, or by reason of strength, even 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? God's wrath. This seems to be the great secret of God, his wrath. And by secret, I don't mean that he has hidden it from us. No, in fact, the Bible often speaks of his hot displeasure. It often speaks of his anger, his fury. It's not as though God is a, has a raging temper that only reveals itself to its closest family. This is only a secret, it seems, in our generation. We've stopped talking about it because we don't like it. And, and who would, right? Look at verses 7 and 8 again. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. It's all out on the table for God to see. Shining his light on. This is the secret. The wages of sin is death. And God brings this about in his anger and wrath. Sin provokes God to anger. We've forgotten that. We've stopped telling the world this, but it's true. Sin provokes God to anger. This was true for those wandering in the wilderness. Turn back to Numbers chapter 14. I want to read just verses 1 through 12. For the context, they have crossed the sea. They have been wandering for quite a while now, and they have just sent the spies in to check out the promised land. And the spies came back, and all but two of them said, we can't do it. It's too much. 
Then all the congregation, verse 1, raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Great numbers of Israelites died in the wilderness. Why? Because God, in his wrath toward their sin, toward their rejection of him, killed them. Jump down to verse 32 of the same chapter. After Moses has prayed and pleaded with God to be true to his covenant with his people, he still punishes them. And he says, But as for you, your dead bodies shall fill this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. Forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to, this, to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Sin provokes God to anger. And this is still true for us today. And all have sinned, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And your sin is right there in front of God. That's what verse 8 says. It's in his light. He sees it. It's right out on the table for him, uh, for him to see. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. He sees, he hears, and it angers him. But remember, stay with me, because Moses is praying here. 
Moses is praying, he's interceding for his people. This, this is a prayer. He's confessing this truth and he's comparing men with God. He's acknowledging his own sin and the sins of his people before the God who is their dwelling place, but he's still working towards something in this prayer. Don't stop the prayer here. Don't stop the prayer in verse 9, but we must acknowledge the truth of verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. That's it. And Moses here, he's living under the weight of the law. He's the man who literally carried the tablets of the law to the people and then saw them reject the lawgiver. He's pleaded with God not to destroy them, but to be faithful to his promise. And this prayer here reads like a prayer of an old, weary man who is discouraged that his life has passed him by so quickly. And for what? For what did he have to show for his life's work? Verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away, O glory. And he looks out over the encampment of the people, the Israelites. And he thinks of their stubbornness and their hard-heartedness. Who considers the power of your anger, verse 11, and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers these things? Hebrews will articulate it like this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord judges his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Imagine... Imagine being a grandfather or grandmother and looking ahead at your own death and back at your family, your children, your grandchildren, and asking verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Imagine looking out over your family, your kids and your grandkids, and asking that question. And being dismayed by the answer. That's how Moses feels. That's what Moses is thinking. But at this point, he doesn't simply just curl up and die. Do you see it? He doesn't just curl up and die. He changes. Verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is the hinge in this psalm. We think we're going to live forever. We think there's always more time later to be godly. This is not unique to our generation, by the way. Uh, Augustine, who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, 1,600 years ago, he famously prayed, Lord, make me pure or chaste. Make me chaste, but not yet. Make me pure later. I want to live a godly life later, Lord. 
but you don't have time. Instead, we should number our days, he says. Remember, the, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. And as we consider these things, as we number our days, we need to apply our hearts to wisdom, he says. Again, in James, James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's a promise. Wisdom is from God. And wisdom tells us right here, as we, as we consider the, the brevity of life, wisdom tells us, so for example, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked within that generation. He's talking about the generation of Psalm 90. I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. He goes on, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We've come to share in Christ. If indeed we, we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as, as in the rebellion, as they did. Don't be like that generation that died in the desert. That God said, you're going to drop dead out here. You're going to live for 40 years a miserable life and then I'm going to kill you. Don't be like them. Instead, be like Habakkuk. Be like Habakkuk who prayed this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Uh, of course, for New Testament Christians, these verses for us, they take on a new meaning, a richer and a fuller meaning, particularly verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? God has been our dwelling place. And here we, when we pray this verse, we are asking Christ to return. Have pity on us, O Lord. We can read this not as the Israelites waiting on God to lead them into the promised land, which is how he writes this and what they're praying for. But we can read this with the longing of, of John the Apostle at the close of the book of Revelation. The last two verses in the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John responds with, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Moses prays this looking ahead, looking across the mountains to the promised land, and so do we, but it's a better promised land. There will be no more sickness in this promised land. There will be no more rebellion in this promised land. There will be no more death. There will be no more time in this promised land. See, in the light of eternity, the prayers of verses 14 to 17, they take on a new significance. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Eternity can begin now. He's saying, show us the chesed we've heard of. Show us that that consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of God. Show us your steadfast love, your loving kindness, Lord. Save us today that we may rejoice all of our days and for all of eternity. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses and the Israelites had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but Jesus promised an eternity in the Father's house. He goes way beyond the 40 years. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And then we pray this. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This ought to be our prayer. Let the favor of our Lord God be upon us. This is, teach us to number our days, O Lord. Because our God, we're dust. We're going back to dust. But our God is from everlasting to everlasting. And Jesus Christ has gone to prepare that everlasting place for us that where he is, we may be also. That's the hope that we can have. That where he is, we may may be also. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray that together right now. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So teach us to number our ways that we may get a heart of wisdom and satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. 
Let your work be shown among your servants and your glorious power to our children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. This is our prayer today, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.